Well, good morning. Welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. We're glad that you're here worshiping with us today. Uh, for those of you who might may be visiting, we, uh, we've taken a hiatus from our regular uh, series, which we're looking at uh, Abraham, and we've taken three weeks to examine the topic of worship within the context of the body. There's, you know, we can talk about worship as beings. We're created to worship in all of life, but we're really focusing and honing in uh, these couple weeks on corporate worship, worship as a body. And last week, we contemplated the fundamental reality that we were created and were and are redeemed for worship. And not just created and redeemed for worship, generally speaking, but created and redeemed to worship the living God. Uh, we looked at the, the focus of our worship, that God indeed is the one to whom all worship is to be given. Uh, but this morning, I want to begin to explore the question, how? begin to explore because we're going to lay some groundwork and next week we'll get maybe a little more detail but the how of worship um, my goal today isn't to lay out specifics like what songs or which readings we include or what instruments we use or how many prayers or how long the sermon is or any of those details and we may not get to all of those details anyway but it's really to say what is the framework how do we know how to worship. Um, and to do that, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. 2 Samuel 6, 1 to 15, which you can find in your bulletins, you can turn there in your Bibles. This is the account of when David, who's recently been anointed as king, goes to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the tabernacle for worship. So, with that, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, this is God's Word. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cassettes and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nason, Uzziah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzziah, and God struck him down, and struck him down there because of this error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzziah. And the place is called and, and the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. I kept saying Uzziah, but it's Uzzah. <laughs> Uh, and the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David... The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with sound of the horn. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come to a passage in your word that makes us tremble and wonder, that causes us to pause. As we do this, as we consider your word, open our hearts to see the wonders of your glory and might and strength and power and justice and truth. 
And we also might see the wonders of your mercy and your love and your grace. Help me as your servant to be faithful in it, preaching your word, teaching it. Forgive my own sins and weaknesses. Be merciful to me and to this people. For we ask these things through the blood of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. There is uh, a, a, we might call a long standing, enduring, disturbing memory from my childhood. It sticks with me. It's a picture I will, it will never be erased until the Lord erases it, I suppose. And it comes from watching a movie. One many of us have watched, I, I'm, I'm guessing, especially if you're a certain age. Um, it was an iconic Spielberg slash Lucas movie. And it had Harrison Ford as the <laughs> You already know. Indiana Jones, and the first one, of course, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Many of you remember the scene when the Nazis found the Ark of the Covenant, they had it in their possession, and they decided to open it. And the image of that is forever etched in my memory. I'm not going to describe it, at least not in detail, but suffice it to say that they do not survive that encounter. The encounter was, of course, Hollywoodified and somewhat grotesque. But they were basing these accounts from the stories like the one, the account we have here in 2 Samuel, elsewhere. Because these are disturbing accounts. And as we read this account, we can't help but be a bit disturbed when we read it. In fact, we're no different than David. David was disturbed. In fact, the text says that he was angry with the Lord because the Lord broke out against Uzzah. And that's why he named the place Perez Uzzah. Perez meaning to break out or to break out against. So the place of the breaking out of God against Uzzah. This is forever named that. Not only was he angry, but David was afraid of the Lord, wondering, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And when he says those words, he's speaking, of course, as the king, not in some personal way, but he wants to reestablish worship in Jerusalem with the ark of the covenant in the tabernacle. And he's wondering, how could this ever happen if this is the way of the Lord? Now, this seems like a strange place in God's word to go to talk about worship. But in fact, it teaches us one very important principle in this regard. God, the Holy One, is not only to be exclusively worshipped, as we looked at last week, but He alone determines how He is to be worshipped. A text like this ought to give us pause to stop and think and contemplate, just as David paused. And he paused and considered, how could this ark ever get back to Jerusalem? And I think it's important for us to pause and consider, how are we to approach the living God in worship? We have to ask that question. Simply put, this is as basic as we can get. We're to come into worship the living God with reverence and awe, in spirit and in truth. We are to come to worship with reverence and awe in spirit and in truth. And that's my call to you today. Come. Bow down and worship with reverence and awe in spirit and in truth. And we're going to look at this in four, four parts. First, I want to look at the sincerity of, of David, particularly this idea that sincerity is not the grounds for how we worship. Sincerity is not the grounds for how we worship. And then second, we're going to look at the posture of worship, both negatively first and positively, the posture of worship in the text. And then thirdly, we're going to look at how God's word, in fact, is the grounds for how we worship. So if sincerity is not the grounds for how we worship, then what is? Well, the word of God is the grounds for how we worship. And then finally, fourthly, I want us to consider us what it means for us to worship the Lord, 
reverence and awe, the one who is full of mercy and grace as we worship in spirit and truth. So, with that, four points. Beginning with, sincerity is not the grounds. It's not the grounds for how we worship. Um, now, this isn't to say that sincerity is not important. We ought not to be like the Pharisees, whom Jesus calls whitewashed tombs. They did things in accordance to the law, to the nth degree, even going beyond the Word of God to make sure they did things right. And yet, Jesus says they are like whitewashed tombs. Sincerity is important, but it is not the grounds for how we worship. Let me put this positively. God is both the object of our worship and the definer of His worship. God is both the object of, the worship, of our worship and the one who defines how we worship. One thing that strikes us immediately about this text is the sincerity of David and the Israelites. Uh, you, you need a little bit of context uh, to know what was going on with the ark and why it wasn't in Jerusalem and all of that. And so for those of you who aren't familiar, familiar with what this whole ark of the covenant thing is, um, some of you remember how in our Sunday school program last year, the third to fifth grade class actually built a replica, a mini replica of the tabernacle back in that room, and, it, and we got to go visit it. For those of you who got to see it, it was quite wondrous. And the, the, the kids led us into the final place, the Holy of Holies, and in that place of the Holy of Holies was this box. It was a golden box. It was a box that was overlaid with gold that had places for poles to be put in. That will be significant later on. And inside the box was put the tablet of the covenant, the table of the covenants, the, 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 the law of God itself was placed in there, the one Moses had received from God. And not only that, but there were a few other items from their journeys through the Exodus, right? The little jar of manna and uh, the staff of Aaron that were put into the box. We read about that later in the book of Hebrews. But on top of the ark were these two cherubim, these two angels with wings covering their eyes. And there was a seat in the middle. And this was the place where God would descend in that glory cloud and sit on top of that mercy seat in the Holy of Holies and be as God in the presence of his people. And the priests would go. The high priest once a year would enter into that Holy of Holies. This is the most significant you might say, object that, that symbolized the presence of God with his people. So what happened to this, to this box, to this Ark of the Covenant that carried the... Well, if we go back in the story of Samuel, uh, to 1 Samuel, we will see that under Samuel he had a few kind of rogue sons who, who decided, well, the people of God, they were about to go fight the Philistines, and they thought, well, wouldn't it be a great idea to carry the ark out and to, to battle with us? Wouldn't that be a, a good thing? And, and, the, and Samuel's son said, sure, we'll, we'll do that. We'll take it out. Well, what happens is they lose the battle, and the ark is taken away from them, stolen, taken into the camp of the Philistines. Now, that wasn't good news for the Philistines. The Philistines now had this this symbol of God's presence with his people. And they put their little gods up beside it. And they'd wake up in the morning and those gods would be fallen down. And they'd set it back up and then those gods would fall down and be broken into pieces. Not only that, but they ended up, um, the whole wherever this, wherever this uh, ark was, uh, the people in that town would get these... Um, uh, I, there's a, there's a term for it in the Hebrew, but the best that we can come up with in English translation is little tumors. Little tumors all over the body. So what they would do is they would take the ark and they would get it out of their town, send it to the next Philistine town. Well, then there would be tumors there. And so finally the Philistines said, this is too much. We're sending it back. And they put that, that ark of the covenant back on a, on a brand new cart and with these oxen and they send it into Israel and it ends up it ends up in a small town in Kiriath Jerem, on the edge of the, 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 of the Israelite land. And it ends in a house of a person by the name of Abinadab. Um, now, the text that we're looking at calls the place Baal Judah, and it's just another name for the same place. And it lived in that house, far from the center of Israel, 
far from the tabernacle, all through the time of Saul. King Saul never considered going to this. Now David is king, and what is his first thing that he wants to do? Let's restore the worship of God. Let's go get this tabernacle. It's a wonderfully earnest, sincere thing. He gets all of the representatives of Israel together and says, what should we do? I think we should go get this this tabernacle, this uh, this Ark of the Covenant. And he gathers 30,000 men as representatives, this army of host people and priests, and he goes out to get the Ark to reestablish worship. He was earnest. And when he gets there, he appointed Abinadab son and his, and his sons to drive the ark on a brand new cart. Interesting, by the way. It was no rickety old thing. It was only the best. After all, that's how it came to them. Ahio, the son of Abinadab, led in the front and presumably then Uzzah, the other son, followed the cart. David was not only thoughtful in getting a brand new cart, but way more efficient than what the law of God told them to do. Think of all the rigmarole of having to carry the ark by poles, because that's what they were taught to do. The Levites and the Kohathites had to carry the ark on poles, travel over great distance, carrying a heavy object. Well, let's just get a cart. It's efficient. It was sincere and earnest. Ahio and Uzzah were sincere in their work. These 30,000 men, maybe it was a security detail, were sincere in their work. But sincerity was not the only thing or the primary thing that God required. God this holy and just God, creator of all things, the one who was and is and is to come, does not accept David and Uzzah's sincerity. When the cart hits a bump in the road and Uzzah reaches out to protect the ark, a noble and sincere effort, the living God strikes him. I think we can read this story without a bit of a sense of disquiet in us. Lord, why would you be so cruel? They just meant the best. They didn't mean to. They, they were wanting to do what you wanted, which was worship. David himself was angry at the Lord. Uzzah and David were just trying to restore worship and protect the ark. Why did such a small thing cause such an outburst, or as the text puts it, a breaking out of God? Why? R.C. Sproul in his classic treatise on the holiness of God, which I commend to you, says this with regard to the account of Uzzah. There is a reason why we are offended, indeed angered, by the story of Uzzah and the story of Nadab and Abihu. Now, you, you remember them from earlier in uh, the, the book of uh, Numbers. Nadab and Abihu uh, also offered strange fire to the Lord. Maybe they were being sincere, but either way, they were struck dead. But Sproul goes on to say this, he says, We're angered by the story of Uzzah and the story of Nadab and Abihu. We find these things difficult to stomach because, and here's the key, we do not understand four vitally important biblical concepts. Holiness, justice, sin, and grace. Vitally important. Now Sproul will go on to un unpack all of that. I commend that book to you. But you can see the reason we get offended and anger is because we don't grasp who God is. Going back to last week, who is God? He is holy, 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 holy to its nth degree. And he is just, perfectly just. And apart from his grace, sinners like us cannot approach him. We can't. We desperately need his grace. No minor infractions. 
You'll remember the Israelites when they were at Mount Sinai. They weren't even allowed to go up to the mountain. The cloud had descended on the mountain. They weren't even allowed to approach it lest they enter the cloud and they die. Moses, the intercessor, the great high priest, the prophet, he alone and Joshua, who goes a little ways, are alone able to go up the mountain. And there, Moses is able to intercede on behalf of the Israelites. But even he, when he says, Lord, show me your face, God says what? No one can see my face and live. Isaiah, when he was faced with a vision of the throne room of God, when he hears the angels crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What does he do? He says, Woe is me. I'm undone for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. God is holy and just. In our study in, 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 in the story of Abraham, we, we see what happens to those who rebel against God in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's judgment for sin. Unless we come to terms with who God is, that the least sin, the least sin of ours, deserves death. We will not make sense of a text like this. Okay? Who is the one? He is the Holy One, Judge of Heaven and Earth. Put another way, he is unapproachable. Moses had to be hid in the cleft of a rock and shown only his backside. And when Moses finally comes off the mountain, his face shined in such a way that none could look at him because of the glory of the Lord shining from him. And so he had to wear a veil before his face. Isaiah had to have those burning coals come and touch those unclean lips. When Uzzah reached out and touched the ark, the judge of heaven and earth broke out against him. Now, mind you, it was in the law that none should touch the ark. In fact, in Numbers chapter 4, we're given the instructions of how they were to carry the ark. If you go to Numbers chapter 4, you can read all about the Kohathites. They were Levites specifically set aside for this process when the temple or the tabernacle would move because it was a tent uh, they had to pack it up and they had very specific instructions on how to pack it up in fact the ark of the covenant was to be taken uh, by the priests and, and the, 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 the veil that covered that separated the holy of holies was to go over top of the ark not only that but once you covered the ark with this veil then you had to cover it with goat skin not only that, but then the, 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 the Kohathites were the only ones who were to carry it, and they were to carry it by these poles. They weren't to touch the ark, lest they die, the text says. This was the instruction of the Lord. Not only that, but there were sacrifices that were to be made, priestly intercessions so that God would not, in fact, break out. Friends, sincerity in worship as important as it is, is not the determinative, determinative factor in what qualifies as right worship. Only God himself defines for us how he is to be worshipped. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? It means that like David, we better pause and consider what we do in worship. Stop and consider David was afraid of the Lord, the text tells us. And I think there's at least a part of his fear that is appropriate. He ought to have feared the Lord. Not because the Lord is cruel, as David might have considered or thought in that moment, but because he is just and he is holy. And so as we come into worship, we ought to consider, am I approaching the worship of God flippantly, according to my own sentiments, my own ideas, what I think is good. Or am I humbly coming before God looking to offer up acceptable worship? Worship according to His way and His word. What I'm starting to talk about now is in fact our posture. Our posture of worship. 
And even before we discuss particularly how God calls us to worship according to his word, I think we need to think about posture. And this is my second point, is to consider the posture of worship. There are two postures that we see in David with regard to worship here in the text. We see the posture of pride and the posture of humility. They're the opposite sides of the coin, the posture of pride and the posture of humility. David, and I would say by extension Uzzah, presume that they are doing something great for God. The heart issue behind the issue, right? Now, I don't doubt their sincerity, but underneath their sincerity, I think, is a sense of pride. I think it's important to note where this story falls within the context of, the, of, of Samuel and the story of these kings. I think it's really important. The whole narrative of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, is about who is king over Israel. All of it is about who is king over Israel. You see, the people, back in chapter 8, said they didn't have a king. Things were going poorly. They lost their ark to the Philistines. And they, they cry out to God and they say, we want a king like the nations. God warns them. And Samuel says, you get a king, it's going to be bad news for you. He's going to oppress you. He's going to take your sons and put them into, into his army and conscript them. He's going to take many women for his wives. He's going to seek his own glory and power. This is what the kings around you do. I'm sure you want that. They say yes. And so God says, okay, let me give it to you. First king they get, of course, is Saul, and he fits that worldly king to a T. But now, now David comes along. They wanted a king like the nations, and God warns them of the danger. But God had said in his word, all the way back in the law under Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when they ask you for a king, because God knows all things, and he plans all things, he ordains all things, and he says, when they ask you for a king, this is what your king ought to be like. And what it looks like to be a king under the Lord is to recognize I'm not the king. That we have a king. And the way that the king was to recognize that he was ultimately not the king, but that he was underneath the king of kings, was to keep the law of God at his side, read it, make a copy of it, read it day and night, all the time. Have that be his God. Because who was the king? The Lord. The God of hosts. He was to fear the true and live in God as his sovereign king. Now they had just anointed David when we come to our text. And Saul, who had not feared the Lord, is in contrast to David. Here was a man after God's own heart, a king that loved God. But in this first act, even this good act, he failed to follow God's law but rather allowed his pride as king to determine how to worship God. I'm going to get 30,000 men. Yeah. Show my strength. I'm going to get a brand new ox cart. If the kings of the Philistines can have an ox cart, I'll have a better ox cart. And Uzzah, in his pride, thought God needed his protecting. God, David says, you need me. You need me to go get your ark. You need me to defend you. And Uzzah says, God, you need me to protect you. It's pride. When we think about our posture in worship, I think we have to ask ourselves, who do we think we are? We think we are. So often we think highly of our ideas, highly of our talents. We see all sorts of effective things done in the context of worship or in the world that we think, oh, if we only had that, then we could have a thousand people in our midst. Now, don't mishear me, because we'll talk about how to make prudent and wise decisions for corporate worship. We have to do that. We include all sorts of practical details. We have to do that. But we ought first to examine our hearts and ask the question, what is our posture in worship? 
What is it? Is it one of pride? We come here with all of our worship experience under our belt, and it's easy to enter a new church or even a church we've been a part of for a long time and think, man, I know better. I know it could really work. David thought he knew it could really work. Uzzah thought he knew it could really work. Before we talk about those things, we have to wrestle with ourselves. We are about the worship of the holy and living God, the judge of all the earth, the judge of our hearts, and that ought to cause us to tremble and to fear and to question ourselves, to ask about our motivations. Friends, what is your posture in worship? What is mine? Well, there's a second posture that we see in the text that is David's, and it's one of humility. He begins with pride and he ends with humility. After observing the breaking out of God against Uzzah, he was disheartened. In fact, his fear left him to abandon the prospect altogether. He decides, I ain't touching the thing. I'm backing away. How are we ever going to get this to, to the temple or the tabernacle? And so what, he, what does he do? He leaves it in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. I think that little detail is really interesting. Obed-Edom... The Gittite. Who were the Gittites? Guess what? Those were the Philistines. The Philistines. Now, I'm not saying Obed-Edom was a Philistine at this point. He seemed to be living in Israel. And for all intents and purposes, he probably was a, a God-fear, one who worshipped the living God. But it's at least interesting that instead of putting him into some, you know, Judite or Benjamite, he puts him in the camp, into the house of you know, they're Philistines. They can handle this stuff. The Lord will just break out with, with tumors or something. I don't, know what, I don't know what was going on. It's an interesting detail. But no matter what it was, it was a bit cowardly to do. And what does the Lord do in this moment? He sends it into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. What does he do? The Lord. He blesses his house. And we'll come back to this in just a minute, but 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 it's it's one of those miraculous moments where you're like, why did he not break out against against Obed Edom? I mean, he was there in the midst of this Ark of the Covenant, but for whatever reason, in God's divine mercy and grace, he blesses instead of destroys. And when David hears of this, I think he's humble. He's humble. At this moment, instead of seeing God as harsh, he sees God's mercy. You see, the issue is not that God did not want to bless Israel with his presence or to have them enjoy the worship of him, but it was their pride and arrogance and not following his way that caused him to break out. And so David, as he starts to come into an understanding of this, he is humbled. And he not only displays this by moving toward the ark and bringing it back according to the word of God, but he dances in an ephod, linen ephod, before the Lord as that happens. Now, there's, that could, we could open up a whole discussion on just that alone. But what I want us to note, you know, in the next section, his wife, Michael, will look at this and be so ashamed of David. He'd be completely ashamed of David. And, and some people think, well, it was because he was dancing naked before the Lord. Well, he wasn't naked, let's be clear. He, he wore something over himself. And it wasn't about how little clothing he had on, but it was the type of clothing he had on. Who is King David? He was the king. And now he strips himself to the most basic outfit he can come up with and humbly puts himself before the king of kings, the throne of God, and says, you are the living God. You are the king of kings, not me. And Michael's ashamed. Stand up for yourself, David. Be the king. And David says, I'm not the king. There is only one king who is worthy of worship. He took off his royal robes and put himself as a worshiper of the king of kings. What's our posture in worship? our posture? Is it one of seeing ourselves, focusing in on our experience, fixating on what we think is best in worship? 
Friday? Or is our focus on God? Coming before Him with reverence and awe and His holiness and justice and joy and delight in His grace and mercy and with humility wondering at who this God is that doesn't break out against us but loves us and blesses us. We spent a good chunk of our time orienting our hearts from questioning the grounds of sincerity, something our culture, by the way, highly values. It's not sincere. Is it worth it? Sincerity is the mark of true anything, being true to yourself. We've seen how that is, that is not sufficient of a grounds. We've also considered our posture one of how we often are with pride and looking at how we ought to be humble. But now I want to contemplate what is the grounds for our worship, the Word itself. The Word of God is the grounds for our worship. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time considering this from our text. I know that sounds strange. Um, but I think it's actually pretty clear from the text. Both in the response of God to David and Uzzah, Right, And as well as in David's response to how he eventually leads the procession into Jerusalem. And we could go back and we could look at Numbers uh, and the rest of the, the law of God and see how God particularly is, calls God's people to shape worship. We could go back and look at all of that. And we can see how David followed the letter of the law. He went to the particulars. They took the number of steps. They worshipped they carried according to the law, all of that. We can see that, I think, clearly in the text. But now I want us to consider, what about now, right? We don't live in ancient Israel. We live this side of the cross. How do we worship now? New Testament worship. What's distinct? What's similar? What is the same? How do we start to wrestle with all of that? And one of the challenges that we face is that there is in the New Testament pretty limited information on how the early church worshipped. There's no book like Leviticus. Wouldn't that be great? Just like, no more worship wars, give us a Leviticus of the New Testament. Just show us. Uh, having said that, I do think the New Testament instructs us. And I think Leviticus instructs us as well. But in terms of explicit instructions, it's pretty broad pretty limited. So to start, I want to think about a few biblical theological notes that would help us. First, to understand what was going on in the Old Testament was, in terms of worship, was meant to prefigure or to look forward to or to, 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 to type, if you will, what was to come. Right? So all of the temple worship, all of the rituals, all of the sacrifice, all of the, the forms and outward expression of worship was meant to look forward to what Jesus was going to do. We want to know more about that. We can read the book of Hebrews, a sermon that was very much on this, because the, the Israelite, the Hebrews, as they were becoming Christian, as they were con like trusting in Jesus as their Savior, they're wondering, how is it that we're supposed to worship? We looked a little bit this, at this in the book of Galatians. Do we continue some of these practices, like circumcision? And so the writer of Hebrews says, you have to understand, all of that temple worship pointed forward to Jesus. I think one passage of scripture that's very helpful in this regard is Hebrews chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 and following, says this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. He's referring, of course, to that experience at the Mount, at Mount Sinai. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice, those words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. That was when God spoke from Mount Sinai, when he thundered down. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifies it, terrifying was the sight of Moses that said, Moses said, I tremble with fear. The writer of Hebrews goes on and says, But you've come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, that is Christ, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, that great heavenly host, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All of it has found its fulfillment in Jesus. So that later on, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. A couple things just to note about it. There's a shift from all those outward forms and all those outward expressions of the holiness and justice of God to a spiritual worship. We read this in the Samaritan when, when, she, when the Samaritan woman asked Jesus, where are we going to worship? Are we going to worship in Jerusalem? Are we going to worship in Samaria? And Jesus says, neither, though the Jews were right, neither, we're going to worship in spirit and in truth. There's a change, a transformation that happens. From type to reality, from fulfillment, from promise to fulfillment, from external to internal. It's one thing that I think is important to note. But the second thing that is important to note is that we do have some measure of what worship should be. One is that idea that God is to be worshipped with reverence and awe and that he still continues to be consuming fire remains. That doesn't go away. We often think of the Old Testament God, just this is the culture speaking to us, the Old Testament God is the God of anger, and the New Testament God is the God of love. That's heresy. That's heresy. The God who is just and judge, who is holy, 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 is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. And that God of the Old Testament who displayed himself in fire and smoke was a God of mercy and love and grace who condescended to those people and dwelt in their midst though they were a people of unclean lips. Same God. But the form changes. And so we see throughout the New Testament different components of worship. Acts chapter 2 is one of those few places where we get a little glimpse into that early, early, early worship. Right after the Apostle Peter preaches his sermon, and the people are starting to gather together. This is what it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 42. And they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceedings to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And we get other little glimpses like this. In, in the New Testament, what worship was like. One of the major changes that happens as the veil is torn in two and we have access to the throne of grace through the blood of the Lamb, as we have now can see God face to face through the face of Jesus, as we enter into that worship, the Lord Jesus, we are, with the Lord Jesus, we are called a kingdom of priests. We have access to the throne of grace. We'll come to that at the very end, but that's one aspect. They came together. They broke bread together. They sang hymns. They listened to the word. They prayed together. They didn't forsake meeting together, as it says in Hebrews. But this brings up a question. I know it's getting late, so I'm going to try to be good. But there's so much here, right? brings up a question. Why is the data so limited? Why is there no New Testament book of Numbers or Leviticus? I think there's two possible reasons. First is one I've already described, the biblical theological reason. We were moving from all of that external stuff, highly regulated to internal worship, where we have access to the throne of grace through the Spirit of God who dwells in us. We are united to Christ in a unique, special way. The Old Testament saints of course, we're connected, but they went through these outward signs. And so there's a change from external to spiritual, biblical theological reason. But there's a second reason 
that I think is very practical and maybe helpful for you all. And that is that in a very bare bones form, there's a spreading out that's possible of worship to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Think about it for just, just a minute. Old Testament worship is very, very specified to the Hebrew people. To that ancient Semitic group of people. You had to be circumcised. You had all these specifications. It was very culture-oriented. Very, very much about the Jews. Later on, that became the distinguishing mark. How we worship is distinct from all the rest of the world. But when the Lord Jesus comes, He's and he's fulfilling the promises to Abraham and the gospel's going out to all the world, there's a change in how worship is expressed. Rather than all those external forms being very particular to a people, he says, Here, here's the basics. And I'm going to explain what those basics are. So here are the basics. Now translate them into every culture, tribe, this spiritual worship is going to go to the ends of the earth. And now, today, as we look across the globe, we can see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping around the throne of God with distinct and unique ways, and yet guided by God's Word. So how do we, how do we make sure we're guided by God's Word? Well, I'm going to give you a very Presbyterian way of thinking about this. So bear with me. It's called the regulative principle. Isn't that? The regulative principle of worship. It sounds stuffy, just saying. <laughs> and yet it's one of the most freeing concepts that I know. You know, some of you play sports. Have you ever played a sport without rules? It's terrible. It's absolutely horrendous. It's no, it doesn't work. Well, some would think, well, if we just get rid of rules, then we're more free. But the actual, the reality is it's just chaos and it creates more consternation. But God says, I'm going to give you rules according to my word and how you to worship to protect you from yourself, from idolatry, right? And those rules free us up to worship. And not just worship here in West Hartford, Connecticut, but to worship across the globe, wherever we are, in whatever tongue we have. So here's the regular principle of worship. All it is, is we worship according to the word. That's it. That's the regular principle of worship. We worship according to the word. And so what does that mean? It means that what God says we're to do in worship, that's what we do. If God does not say to do those things in worship, we don't do them. And we distinguish between forms and circumstance. Very Presbyterian, sorry. But the forms are the things that we must do. So here's an example. We must read the Word of God. Does anybody disagree? We must preach the Word of God. Does anybody disagree? We must sing the Word of God. We must pray the Word of God. And of course, when I say those words, the Word of God, we can summarize the Word in our prayers and in our singing. But you get my point. We sing the Word of God. We pray the Word of God. We read and preach the Word of God. We offer up thanksgiving to our God through tithes and offerings. We confess the Word of God, the truths of it. We make oaths and promises to God and His Word. And we eat and feast on the Word of God. And are washed in the Word through baptism. That's it. That's all we do. If any of you are looking for more, sorry, you've come to the wrong place. That's what we do as God's people. That's it. The regular principle says we do it according to the Word. Now, there's lots of circumstances that we can look at and say, well, how do we particularly preach the Word of God? Do we preach 55 minutes or 60 minutes as I'm approaching? You get my point. There's lots of details that we can work out as a people, what's prudent and wise. But may I be anathema if I do anything other than preach Christ and Him crucified. If I do anything else. There's a lot more to say on that, but I want to close. Even as we finish this text, I think there's an unsettled feeling with it. And it's this. Will God smite me if I mess up? Right? It's not like, Uzzah! This will, I'll just reach out. <laughs> what if 
I say something or do something wrong in the context of worship, will God smite me? And this brings me to my final thought, conclusion. Worship the Lord with reverence and awe, who is full of mercy and grace. On the one hand, we see God's clear judgment against Uzzah in the text, but it brings up a question. Who is it that can approach the presence of God? Who is it that can enter into the Holy of Holies? Who is it that can touch God and not die? Who can see Him in His face and not be struck down and destroyed? There is only one. This is what's amazing about the, the ark going into this house of this Philistine convert. We're going to assume he's a convert. Obed-Edom. That God doesn't strike him dead there is only by God's mercy. Only God's mercy. I think that's what David saw. God is a God not only of justice, but he is a God of mercy. Uzzah couldn't. Couldn't touch the ark. Couldn't save couldn't do anything. David couldn't do anything. But there was a king who would come. One of David's own seed who would come. Who could enter into the Holy of Holies. And here's the thing. Instead of entering the Holy of Holies, he humbled himself and went outside the camp and suffered and died on the cross that we might have access. This is the good news of the gospel. The God whom we can worship. No one can approach God and live Yet through our great high priest who offered himself up as a sacrifice once for all gave us access to worship. All praise and glory be to Jesus. As we consider what it means to worship, let us do it with humility, reverence and awe, wondering at the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and died that we might see Let's pray.